Until the early 2000s, the British journalist and author Christopher Hitchens was a man of the left. As a college student in the 60s, he opposed the Vietnam War and he joined the Labour Party. As a young journalist in the 70s, he traveled to areas of political turmoil to report on the actions of dictators and imperial powers and wrote blistering critiques of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. But in the 2000s, something changed. Christopher, you did not support the Gulf War in 91, and yet no one has been more vocal, it seems to me, uh, in terms of being supportive of a war against Iraq than you have. This was Charlie Rose in a 2002 discussion with Hitchens. Here's how he responded. No question that Iraq can do better than it's doing or, or be done by better by its friends and allies. I consider myself in this matter to be an ally of the Iraqi and Kurdish opposition. And I think that's being true to the same principles with which one was opposed to previous interventions there. Hitchens campaigned vigorously in support of the Iraq war until his death in 2011. How did Hitchens move from leftist anti-war critic to supporter of George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq? The answer to that question matters because Hitchens' views mattered. He was an award-winning journalist, a best-selling author, and a sought-after speaker famous for his eloquence and barbed wit. Here's Hitchens in a talk following the publication of his 2007 book, God is Not Great. That's partly why I favor compulsory religious instruction in schools. <laughs> because I know of no other way to guarantee the steady mass production of atheism among, among the young. Hitchens' outspoken atheism was one source of his fame. But his support for the Iraq War also gained him a wide readership. In 2005, in a poll conducted by the magazine Foreign Policy, Hitchens was voted the fifth most influential public intellectual in the world. With his prominent platform, Hitchens played a consequential role in increasing public support for military intervention in the Middle East. As Daniel Oppenheimer wrote for Salon, quote, he became the most visible and articulate of the pro-war liberal editors and writers who did so much to legitimate the war. America would have gone to war without Hitchens, but it would have done so with greater doubt. The high-stakes case of Christopher Hitchens forces us to scrutinize that term applied to him, public intellectual. This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. Today, we examine the history of public intellectuals. We ask what responsibilities they owe to the public, what forces threaten those responsibilities, and what our role is as citizens if we want to be not just consumers of public life, but full participants. The term intellectual came into use in its modern sense pretty much with the Dreyfus trial in France, late 19th century. This is MIT professor emeritus and public intellectual Noam Chomsky speaking at an Origins Project event in 2015. The Dreyfus trial he refers to started like this. In 1894, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, a French Jewish military officer, was convicted of passing French military secrets to the Germans. He was sentenced during a secretive trial to life in prison. On January 13, 1898, famed French novelist Émile Zola published an open letter to the French government. Zola's letter, entitled J'accuse, or I accuse, accused the government of wrongfully convicting Dreyfus and of anti-Semitism. Zola called his letter, quote, 
a revolutionary means to hasten the explosion of truth and justice. He was derided by the anti-Dreyfusards with a newly coined pejorative, an intellectual. For his defense of Dreyfus, Zola received a prison sentence of one year. His bravery, however, ultimately helped earn Dreyfus a presidential pardon. Alongside the Dreyfus affair in France, another prominent group of public intellectuals in the 19th century was a certain class of thinkers in Russia. Cornel West, my personal favorite public intellectual and professor at Union Theological Seminary, explains. In the 19th century, you had the Russian uh, tradition that produced the very notion of intellectuals who were marginal people who tried to speak truth to power, who were always over against the status quo, who had a lover's quarrel with the powers that be. Called the intelligentsia, these Russian thinkers, like Vissarion Belinsky, criticized autocracy, called for the abolition of serfdom, and defended the rights of the common people, women, and minorities. Speaking truth to power should, ideally, be the public intellectual's role, whenever circumstances demand it. But that ideal has not matched the reality for much of Western history. Here's Chomsky again at a debate at Palatsky University in the Czech Republic in 2014. In fact, if you look at the history of intellectuals, it's not a pretty one. Uh, overwhelmingly, intellectuals have uh, labored in the service of power. Some intellectuals use their position to defend the status quo. Some use their position to critique it. We could use the term status quo intellectuals for the first group and dissident intellectuals for the second. A good faith public intellectual could belong to either group. But depending on whether you're supporting or opposing those in power, you'll be treated differently by the powerful, as Chomsky points out in this 1997 talk in St. Paul, Minnesota. The intellectuals who are honored and privileged in our own society are those who stay pretty narrowly within the framework of power and privilege. There's a certain degree of leeway, but it's not very great. The intellectuals who stand up for the rights of the poor and the oppressed and who uh, reject the, uh, the doctrines of the powerful, or they typically have a rather different fate. In the aftermath of World War II, public intellectuals became especially visible in American life, thanks to a growing population of college-educated citizens and new forms of media. Public intellectuals appeared on popular television shows, like William F. Buckley's Firing Line or The Dick Cavett Show. Here's a clip from a 1971 episode of The Dick Cavett Show with writer Norman Mailer and public intellectual Gore Vidal. What did you ask him if he had a copy of this notorious piece of writing? This notorious piece of writing, he brought the uh, one page of it, um, which was my piece on women's it was liberation. More, it was more of the same after that. Thought. And uh, piece on women's liberation, and particularly on the people who had started to attack the women... And some of the attacks, uh, particularly Mailers, Irving Howe, I thought uncalled for in their tone, and I suppose I was kind of rough in mine. Many public intellectuals, like Vidal, operated from outside the university as freelance critics, writers, and editors. Some were university professors. During the Cold War, the government sought out scholars to advise on nuclear strategy and international economics, creating a close relationship between the academy and the government. This relationship came under fire during the Vietnam War. Chomsky, then a distinguished professor of linguistics at MIT, began protesting the war in 1962. In 1967, 
as reports of war crimes are finding their way back to American shores, Chomsky published his seminal essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Like Zola before him, he decried the status quo intellectuals who were engaged in justifying government aggression in Vietnam. For Chomsky, this group included liberal intellectuals like Arthur Schlesinger, who called American policies in Vietnam, quote, part of our general program of international goodwill. It also included conservatives like William F. Buckley, who wrote in a 1968 column about Vietnam that, quote, the time to introduce the use of tactical nuclear arms was a long time ago in a perfectly routine way. The same opposition between status quo intellectuals and dissident intellectuals emerged again before the United States' 2003 invasion of Iraq. Numerous prominent intellectuals lent strong public support to the war. Norman Podoritz, Michael Ignatieff, Jeffrey Goldberg, Andrew Sullivan, David Frum, and Bill Kristol, among others, along with Christopher Hitchens. Their support was certainly part of the reason why 76% of Americans approved of military action in Iraq on the day after the invasion. So it's worth delving more deeply into why Hitchens especially supported the war. Ian Parker in The New Yorker noted that Hitchens' embrace of the war, quote, confused and dismayed former comrades. Some of those comrades had their own views about why he made this shift. John R. MacArthur wrote in Harper's, quote, I've heard it suggested that Hitchens switched sides for the money. Some critics on the left, George Packer noted in The New Yorker, quote, accused Hitchens of currying favor with the powerful. The idea was that Hitchens had sold out for the sake of celebrity and dinner invitations. Hitchens did always have a taste for elite company. His New York Times obituary recounted that during his college years, quote, he arranged a packed schedule of anti-war demonstrations by day and champagne-flooded parties with Oxford's elite at night. According to his friends, the sentence he was least likely to utter was, I don't care how rich you are, I'm not coming to your party. Parker himself didn't believe Hitchens had simply sold out. One reason Hitchens supported the war was his fierce and long-standing hatred of religion and clericalism. He opposed, quote, Islamofascism for the same reason he defended Salman Rushdie when Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa calling for Rushdie's death for blasphemy. For Hitchens, the fatwa was, quote, a matter of everything I hated versus everything I loved. It's become a, a major preoccupation of my life, though, in the last eight or nine years, especially since uh, September 11, 2001, to try and help generate an opposition to theocracy and its depredations. This is Hitchens at a 2008 debate at Virginia Commonwealth University. That opposition to theocracy was related to, as The New York Times put it, a growing conviction that radical elements in the Islamic world posed a mortal danger to Western principles of political liberty and freedom of conscience. The attacks of September 11th helped cement that conviction. So was it personal conviction that led Hitchens to support the war? Did the desire for money or power or even notoriety play a part? When it comes to any one person's private motives, it's never completely clear. It is clear, though, that status quo intellectuals can face more threats to their intellectual integrity because there are more temptations in their path. There's a temptation to flatter those in power who enforce the status quo. If the existing system is rewarding you but not others, it's tempting to simply try and secure your place in that system. For many intellectuals, the most tempting rewards are those offered by the university. Originally, intellectuals were public. 
And I think if you look at the history of intellectuals, even preceding the term of the Dreyfus case, uh, and you can go from sort of Galileo to Nietzsche to Freud, uh, the great minds, the great thinkers of the Western uh, world were public figures, not not exclusively, but but largely public figures in as much as uh, they wrote, uh, they addressed themselves to a public. And part of their greatness uh, turns on the point that they were accessible. Uh, Nietzsche, Freud, uh, Marx, Plato, Galileo. Uh, uh, the point is, you can still read their works today. You can open their books. They're accessible to the educated individual. I was struck by something else that intellectuals in the modern period, particularly in the last 50 years, had become increasingly uh, professionals and professors, in which case it was no longer redundant to say public intellectuals because the intellectuals within the university were no longer public in the same way as intellectuals of the past. That was Russell Jacoby from a 2001 panel hosted by New York University and Lingua Franca magazine. In his 1987 book, The Last Intellectuals, Jacoby wrote that a generation of public intellectuals had gone missing. They were lost in universities. Where once intellectuals resided in urban bohemias like Greenwich Village, rising rents and low-wage freelance gigs forced many budding intellectuals into the university's more stable and more comfortable environment. As the academy itself expanded, the culture of conformity with this jargon and its terminology also expanded. And so all the goodies and the toys and the status and so forth come at you. The best status of all is tenure, a permanent guaranteed position at your university. Tenure is important for academic freedom, but its security and comfort don't tend to promote criticism of existing power structures. Tenure also doesn't promote public engagement. It's usually awarded for doing specialized academic research aimed at experts, not for writing accessible pieces for the general public. Cornell West himself was not granted tenure at Harvard in February and has left the institution after a public controversy surrounding the matter. So I think the minute that people do go in indoors, so to speak, there's a big risk that, that it's a good thing that we're protected by tenure and academic freedom. But we should realize that that creates a risk of getting cut off from the general public. And we should work hard on writing. This is Martha Nussbaum a philosopher at the University of Chicago in a 2017 National Endowment for the Humanities interview. Nussbaum's concerns have been echoed by many critics who see academic work as too narrow. Nicholas Kristof wrote in a 2014 New York Times column that the Academy, quote, glorifies arcane unintelligibility while disdaining impact and audience. To be fair, specialization does allow for new discoveries and advancements. But George Shalaba, author of What Are Intellectuals Good For?, and a close personal friend, explains how specialization is also a tool of markets. Equally important is specialization as product differentiation, something that will impress the tenure committee that the department chair can use to pitch to the president for, for more departmental funding. It's much harder to tell whether work is good than whether it's new. Administrators seem to have given up on the former. What matters instead is how many citations you get, how much grant money you attract. That's the voice of the market, the measurable metric, which is, of course, infallible. 
For yet another class of intellectuals, the market is front and center. In his book, The Ideas Industry, Dan Dresner calls them thought leaders. For Dresner, true public intellectuals are highly credentialed experts who know a little about a lot. Thought leaders, by contrast, know one big thing. And so as a result, thought leaders are evangelists. They have one big idea, and they think that that big idea can explain everything. Public intellectuals for Dresner include figures like author Ta-Nehisi Coates and journalist activist Masha Gessen. Thought leaders would include people like Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, whose big thing is summarized in her book title, Lean In, and New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, who commands huge speaking fees and writes best-selling books, but who has sometimes been criticized for offering few new ideas within those books. One reason for the current rise of thought leaders, says Dresner, is the economic inequality that has produced a distinctive new class of plutocrats. Today's wealthy elites love to fund think tanks and mingle at glamorous big ideas conferences like the Aspen Ideas Festival, PopTech, South by Southwest, the World Economic Forum at Davos, and TED. They have an appetite for exciting new ideas, and intellectuals can earn a good living by catering to that appetite. But these elites don't find all ideas equally satisfying. And what they really don't like hearing is public intellectuals telling them that these people are rich, not necessarily because of their own efforts, but because they were born on third base or because they were they benefited from Fortuna. Um, they want to have intellectuals that reaffirm their preconceived worldviews. Successful business leaders generally overestimate the effect of individual agency on life outcomes and underestimate the effects of systemic inequality. Chomsky's ideal public intellectual would focus on critiquing such structural failings. But thought leaders hoping to secure wealthy patrons find it difficult to criticize their meritocratic narratives. As Dresner puts it, if you think speaking truth to power is hard, try speaking truth to money. The problem with our intellectual sphere today isn't that there are too few voices. The problem is that not everyone is speaking with the same goal. Ideally, public intellectuals would work to uphold certain standards of justice and truth in their society. But some status quo intellectuals uphold structures of power and profit. There are always temptations to defend a system that rewards you. But maybe there's a flip side to that story. For intellectuals with prominent public positions, their very prominence can make it harder to stay intellectually honest. But maybe it can be easier to maintain integrity if you're a different kind of intellectual. In Representations of an Intellectual, critical theorist Edward Said described one different kind. Said drew on philosopher Antonio Gramsci's notion of organic intellectuals to define an intellectual as anyone, quote, who works in any field connected either with the production or distribution of knowledge. Organic intellectuals include journalists, consultants, teachers, and other professionals who have a duty to, quote, raise embarrassing questions, to confront orthodoxy and dogma, to be someone who cannot be easily co-opted by governments or corporations. It's because wealth and security can co-opt professional intellectuals that it can sometimes become harder for the public to trust them and harder for them to merit trust. Today, there's a new class of organic intellectuals, us. This is Chomsky again at the 2014 debate, imagining a janitor at MIT. If the janitor who cleans his room uh, happens to have a great deal of knowledge about world affairs and uh, a good deal of insight into human life and understanding, uh, uh, maybe more so than the people who write books, 
we don't call him an intellectual. Uh, intellectuals are people who have a certain degree of privilege, uh, enough to be able to reach audiences and who, do, uh, who discuss issues of general public interest. It's true that this janitor had no way of reaching an audience once. But today, all he would need is a phone. Organic intellectuals now are all of us who live our lives on the Internet, on blogs where we self-publish our opinions, on news sites where we comment on stories, on social media where we post those stories. There are nearly 60 million people on Twitter in the United States alone. And among Twitter users, 71% say they use the site to get their news. There are similarly high numbers for Facebook. Today, we are all distributors of knowledge. And this means public intellectuals aren't the only ones with public responsibilities. Those responsibilities belong to all of us, all of us who consume the ideas they present. Because whether we identify as intellectuals or not, consumption today is participation. Just think about what you might do with this podcast when you're done listening. You might leave a review for others to read. You might direct message a link to your friends. You might post about it on social media for your whole network to see. Or you might do nothing at all. And because the podcasting world is crowded with more than 54 million episodes, this indirectly makes it less likely that other people will find this story. With every move we make, we curate the marketplace of ideas a little bit in one direction or another. Each individual contribution may be small, but multiplied by millions, they add up to something substantial. In the past, we could passively assume that news organizations would disseminate the truth or that responsible intellectuals would convey necessary ideas. Now, for better or for worse, we must take on those tasks for ourselves. Let's ask how we can do it better. So I think we're seeing a change in an ethos about knowledge, not among everybody, but among many on the internet. But um, learning in private is fine, but you're the only one who's improved. When, without any extra effort at a site like Stack Overflow, you can learn in public, and anybody else who comes along can learn from you. That's David Weinberger, a senior researcher of technology at Harvard, in a 2014 interview for Serious Science. In his book, Too Big to Know, Weinberger argues that the new medium of knowledge, the internet, changes the very nature of knowledge itself. We used to think that important knowledge resided in magisterial books or the brains of the experts who write them. Now, says Weinberger, knowledge lies in networks, in the ongoing collaborative conversations that take place in real time, in forums accessible not just to experts, but to everyone. The life of knowledge, we can now see it and participate in it in a way that we couldn't before. That used to be hid, hidden from us. Our open access to knowledge and process became especially visible during the coronavirus outbreak. Joanna Geary, senior director of curation at Twitter, said, quote, the people who are part of professional communities across epidemiology and other kinds of public health, normally they're talking to each other. But right now, they're talking to us all. As the New York Times puts it, the crisis was revealing that Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and others can actually deliver on their old promise to democratize information and organize communities. Many users suddenly found themselves reading urgent, sophisticated observations from public health experts. Of course, not everyone sharing information is trying to help others learn. During the pandemic, vast amounts of misinformation have also been shared intentionally and unintentionally. It's not always easy to assess online information. So once we take that step from educating ourselves to educating others, there's some strategies we need to follow. In a public talk in 2012, Harvard history professor Ann Blair pointed to some of those strategies. 
So, yes, you can find all kinds of great stuff on the web. And, of course, the downside, though, and this is where the nuance comes in, is you can find data and authoritative uh, statements to support any position. So there's no hiding the conclusion that once authoritative-seeming facts or arguments are no longer objective or universal. So what you can do then is make your work transparent, show where you get your stuff, show where you're coming from, your links. Share your sources. Challenge yourself never to post about some issue without linking to reliable sources of evidence. And the more you care about the issue, the more sources you'd better find. In 2014, after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Washington Post polled Americans to ask whether the U.S. should respond with military intervention. Only one in six could find Ukraine on the map, but many still had strong opinions about U.S. policy toward Ukraine. In his book, The Death of Expertise, Professor Tom Nichols explained, quote, Respondents actually showed enthusiasm for military intervention in Ukraine in direct proportion to their lack of knowledge about Ukraine. What Nichols found is actually a widespread human phenomenon. Cognitive scientists Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach put it this way, quote, As a rule, strong feelings about issues do not emerge from deep understanding. In fact, it's the opposite. If we start with strong feelings, they can actually distort our understanding. This cognitive trap is called confirmation bias. If you start off with a strong opinion about an issue, you're likely to seek out and believe only that evidence that confirms your existing opinion. This means that if we want to be good organic intellectuals, we have to do more than cite our sources. We have to change the fundamental attitude with which we set out to learn. Prominent public figures aren't the only ones who face threats to their intellectual integrity. Besides the temptations of money and power, there's the temptation to try and win, to have a side picked in advance, and then broadcast anything that makes your side look good and suppress whatever makes it look bad. That's a temptation we all experience and one we must learn to resist. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt addressed the issue of our cognitive distortions in a 2008 TED Talk called The Moral Roots of Liberals and Conservatives. He explained that each side is blind to the insights of the other because they each start off assuming that the other is wrong. This was his advice. These two stanzas contain, I think, the deepest insights that have ever been attained into moral psychology. Uh, from the Zen master Sen San. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Ask yourself, do you accept this? Do you accept stepping out of the battle of good and evil? Can you be not for or against anything? What made you listen to this episode? Maybe you love intellectual types and wanted to hear them praised. Maybe you hate them and wanted to hear them critiqued. But maybe you just thought, I don't know much about this topic. I'd like to learn more. What if we took that pure desire to learn and brought it into every conversation? What if we could set aside what we're for and against and start by being open to whatever the truth may be? Read carefully, read widely, check sources, and don't start off rooting for one side or the other. Of course, that's only where we should start, not where we should end. Once we've done our research diligently, and we can use the responsibility that comes from having a public platform, even a small one, to share widely and passionately what we believe others ought to know. We should continue holding prominent public intellectuals accountable for upholding decency and speaking truth to power. We should also look for ways to shift the public conversation ourselves by learning, sharing, and amplifying the voices that most deserve to be heard. We hope you found this episode valuable. And if you didn't, we hope you'll get in touch and tell us why. After all, 
That's your job as an intellectual. This episode is produced by Nick Scrementi and Maria Devlin-McNair. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a fantastic and moving episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast, The Lonely Palette. In her episode about Mary Kelly's postpartum document, host Tamar Abishai offers an extraordinary reappraisal of the installation artist Mary Kelly, who used a series of objects and writings to explore her complex and shifting relationship with her child. The episode also features Tamar's own personal experience with motherhood, and it left me choked up in a really good way. It is beautiful and wise and beautifully wise. Give it a listen and learn more at thelonelypalette.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.